Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have come to what may be, may not be touched, not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, end quote. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, quote, I tremble with fear, end quote. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, the, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, as we see today in our passage, your word was delivered. Father, we also know that it was delivered once and for all. Father, we know at the end of the word, it says, do not add to it or take away from it. Father, we pray that neither of those things would happen today. Father, we would stand on your word. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. The title of today's uh, message is called Twin Peaks. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24. As we read through this passage, we are inundated with imagery, just lists of so much stuff going on. And it's intended, I think, very quickly, as he even points out, to make it feel pretty overwhelming. I don't know what experiences you've had by feeling overwhelmed. Uh, we do have, of course, the millennial pejorative of a snowflake in which uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to make someone feel overwhelmed in this world anymore. Um, but whatever experiences you may have had that are overwhelming, all of them pale to this. And think about even the picture that it talks about of a sound of a trumpet. And that's the one that I can relate to. Uh, both my father and my brother played trumpet. Um, my dad has a gold-plated trumpet from one of our favorite quintets, uh, which is about the nerdiest thing I could possibly say. Uh, we enjoy it. I listened to brass forever. I grew up playing brass, mostly trombone, and then into tuba and played in state band doing that. So I know what it's like to be around brass. I like big band. I like all that stuff. I like Maynard Ferguson. Give it to me. I can take it all day. I played in jazz band. Love it. Trumpets, though, are a special breed of person. They are loud. And it does not take much for them to be overwhelming. You would think me with a giant tuba can be overwhelming, and it's not. It's just warm, and it makes you feel good and rumbly, right? But when a trumpet blasts, it's insane. It's absolutely overwhelming. And that is just from simple force. But there's other types of overwhelming that come around, and that's just through ignorance. We can't take in all the information. I was listening to an army ranger this past week describe the times that he's been most uh, scared, the times that he's encountered fear the most. And he's a, a special forces operator. And he was explaining this one time that he went to a mission and just everything was going wrong. The light was wrong. The drop zone was wrong. The position of the enemy was wrong. There was no cover. Everything that you could possibly want as you go through your list was just wrong. And he froze just for a moment. But he was overwhelmed with how bad 
things have gotten. I think about when I show people <laughs> things that I make in woodworking or I look at a tree or we just look at grain or whatever, there's so many things to see. You start to zoom into different sections and all of a sudden you've got 50 different pictures of this one item because there's so many different interesting things going on. And then you show that thing to somebody else and they're like, cool, I like the brown. I appreciate that, thanks. Well, there's a lot more going on than brown. And you start to list off all of these things, but it's overwhelming to them because they don't know better. And those things that happen to us when we go out in nature and we're assaulted, as it were, by these majesty of nature, whether it's mountains or trees or water, whatever it may be, it's too much for us to take in and we're simply just stunned. It's overwhelming. We can't process it all. and We just shut down. And we are coming to that conclusion here in Hebrews. None of these pictures should be new to us, especially having walked through 12 chapters of it now. And in fact, the primary argument is the same one that we've heard all along. Jesus is better. That has been the point, and it will continue to be the point. But we come to this last picture that's offered in Hebrews. We've had tons of different images, tons of different pictures, tons of different comparisons. And he starts a summary in this passage, and we'll continue with it and conclude with it next week. With what we have today, we are meant to feel overwhelmed with two different things. So let's talk about those. We're going to talk about where we are and what's going on, and then you'll see then in there too what we're supposed to experience because of those things. The first thing that we want to look at today is terrifying majesty in the ministry of death. Terrifying majesty in the ministry of death. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Where does this illusion come from? Where is he pulling this from? What are we supposed to understand from this? This comes from Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 20 is the one that everyone remembers because of the Ten Commandments. But as they arrive at Sinai, we see this picture in Exodus 19. Starting in verse 12, it says this, Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a trumpet, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. 
Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. This is a truly spectacular event. This is the culmination of the saving event of the Old Testament. We talk about the Exodus being the saving event of the Old Testament. The the Exodus is the cross, as it were, of the Old Testament. And here we have the culmination of it. It's here that God has brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. This now numerous people, to use Abraham's promise, to become his people, a blessing to the nations as his representatives on the earth. It's here that the Hebrews become a nation. It's here that the law is given. It's here that the people find access to God again. Verse 17 of Exodus 19, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. That's been the journey the whole time, is how do we get back to fellowship with God? We were cast out from the garden, no longer to walk with the Lord. Now the angels stand in our way. How do we get access back to God? You've heard that. We've talked about that. Here it is. They meet Him again. But, is it what you thought it would be? Is it like Eden again? Is it sweet fellowship? Is it total vulnerability and exposure? Is it sweet fellowship? No, it's, it's unbearable. It's absolutely terrifying. Because what is it that God's holiness does to humans? What does the law reveal? Well, from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, 10-20, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they've never known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And here we find the space in between. On the one hand, God was here, represented in all outward demonstrations of infinite holiness, infinite justice, severity, 
and terrible majesty. And on the other hand, men in their lowest condition of sin, misery, guilt, and death. That there be now therefore something else to interpose between God and men. Something to fill up the space between infinite severity and inexpressible guilt. And all this glorious preparation was nothing but a theater set up for the pronouncing of judgment and the sentence of eternal condemnation against sinners. That's all we've displayed. An infinite gap between the two. You know, when you consider the covenant given at Sinai, it's incredible in all of its glory and grace and majesty. And you've heard us speak for weeks about how the law is a grace. And indeed it is. They know God. And even as my class saw today in Amos, when you know God, you're judged especially hard because he's revealed himself to you. As we see here, there's a fundamental problem for us when it comes to the law. The short answer is we can't keep it. But let's look at a few of those issues that happen in there. There's no evidence in all that was done of God's being reconciled to them. In this picture, they meet God, but they're not reconciled. The whole representation of him was an it was that of an absolute sovereign and a severe judge. Nothing declares him as father. Nothing declares him as gracious. Nothing declares him as merciful here. He is an absolute sovereign and a severe judge. The second thing we see is that there's no intimation of any condescension from the exact severity of what was required in the law or of any relief or pardon in case of transgression. If you break one piece of the law, you're guilty of the entire law. There's no oopsie. There's no second try. There is no condescending, no lowering of the standard in any way. The third thing was on top of that, there's no promise of grace in any way or any aid or assistance for the performing of what was required. Thunders, voices, earthquakes, and fire gave no signification of grace. And fourth, <clears throat> the whole thing was nothing but a glorious ministry of death. A glorious ministry of death and condemnation. That's what Paul calls it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. By which the conscience of sinners were forced to subscribe to their own condemnation as just and equal. The law was a ministry of death and condemnation, forcing us to acknowledge the justness, the rightness, the equity with which God judges us as sinners and that our death was necessary. That's what the law brings. You can tell why many people in our culture want to get as far away from that as possible. Because of the consequences. It's absolutely terrifying. And we do a disservice to people out there when we say that it's not. It is absolutely terrifying. Because it speaks the truth. <coughs> that is the case for us. We must agree with the law that we are guilty. It is just, right, 
and equitable that God would require our lives. And so it is still a view of God as judge, represented in fire and blackness. It will fill the souls of convicted sinners with dread and terror, and it should. No matter how boldly and blatantly they've carried themselves, when the Spirit brings a transgressor to the mount, to Mount Sinai, the stoutest heart will quake. If the most godly among them, Moses, quaked, we would as well. See, when God deals with men by the law, he does something very special. He closes them up to only himself and their own conscience. God gave the law to Israel, not in Egypt, not in Canaan, but in a desert, a place of absolute solitude, remote from all men. There, the people could neither see nor hear anything but God and themselves. There's no shelter or place of pleasure. They were brought out into the open, face to face with him with whom they had to do business. And so it is now, when God has designs of mercy towards a sinner, when he takes him in hand, he brings him out of all his retreats and refuges, and he compels him to face the just demands of his law and the unspeakable dreadful manner in which he has disregarded its requirements and sought to hear not its accusations. We run from the law at every opportunity we get. We and our culture like to throw around the phrase Pharisee left and right. That's not the reality of the case. We're running from the law. That's why we write our own. When we're face to face with the law, there's nothing but God's requirements and our consciences, and it's terrifying. One pastor said this, when the law is preached to sinners, alas, in so many places today, that which gives the knowledge of sin, what we read earlier from Romans 3.20, is entirely omitted. It usually falls upon the ears of those who promptly betake themselves to various retreats and reliefs for evading its searching and terror-producing message. When they hear the law, they, they, they seek refuge. They run away from it. They seek refuge in the concerns and amusements of this life in order to crowd out serious and solemn thoughts of the life to come. They listen to the bewitching promises of self-pleasing, the pleasures of sin for a season. Or... They put far forward in their minds the evil day and take security and resolutions of repentance and reformation before death shall come upon them. They have many other things to engage their attention than to listen to the voice of the law. At least, they persuade themselves. It's not yet necessary that they should seriously hearken thereunto his voice. But the reality is, when God brings the sinner to the mount as he most certainly will, either here or hereafter, all these pretenses and false comforts vanish. Every prop is knocked from under him to hide away from his judge is now impossible. Isaiah twenty-eight seventeen, God says this, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. 
There's nowhere to run. Then it is that the sinner discovers that the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on. The covering is narrower than he can wrap himself with. Isaiah 28, 20. He's forced out into the open. He can't cover himself anymore. He's brought face to face with his maker. He's compelled to attend to the voice of the law. There's no escape nor relief. His conscience is now held to that which he can neither endure nor avoid. He's made to come out from behind the trees and find that his fig leaves provide no covering. And so, as the stern and inexorable voice of the law enters into his innermost being, piercing even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow, and his discerning of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4, the poor sinner is paralyzed with fear. The sight of the divine majesty on his throne overwhelms him. The terms and curse of the law slay his every hope. And now, he finally experiences the truth of Romans 7, 9-10. I was alive, in my own estimation, without the law once. But when the commandment came, applied in power to the conscience by the Spirit, sin revived me, became a living, raging, and cursed reality, and I died to all expectation of winning God's approval. And the commandment which was unto life, I found unto death. And so like Israel before Sinai, the sinner cannot endure the voice of the law. The law commands him, but provides no strength to meet its requirements. It shows him his sins, but it reveals no Savior. He is fully encompassed with terror and sees no way of escape from eternal death. That is the very office of the law in the hands of the Holy Spirit. To shatter the sinner's unconcern, to make him conscious of the claims of the Holy God, to convict him of his lifelong rebellion against him, to strip him of the rags of his self-righteousness, to slay all hope of self-help and self-deliverance, to bring him to the realization that he is lost, utterly undone, and sentenced to death. Verse 19, the sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. And when the Holy Spirit applies the law in power, the sinner's own conscience was obliged to acknowledge that his condemnation is just. And there, the law leaves him. Wretched, hopeless, terror-stricken. Unless he flies for refuge to Christ, he is lost forever. And that's where these believers were holding on to. The author of Hebrews says, leave that. Don't hold on to that anymore. You are wretched, you are hopeless, and you are terror-stricken. There is nothing there. And that is our only hope, is Christ. Something to help us fill that gap between. What's interesting about this passage is that he brings this visceral, palpable, things-you-can-touch imagery. And it's overwhelming. It should be. But then it changes on a dime. 
You've not been brought to this. You have been brought to this. You have come here now. What changes? What is it that that absolutely changes directions there? That we would go from one mount to another? It's the death of Christ that changes absolutely everything. We too quickly do away with the sacrificial law in the Old Testament. We refer to that and the ceremonial law as just it's been it's been fulfilled by Christ, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. We lose the regular reminder that all sin deserves death. Every sin deserves death. And that in order for me to be able to enter the presence of God, I must die. My life is required. Don't miss the fact that the entire sacrificial system was substitutionary. If it weren't for the animals, it would be you. Sacrifice is required for my account before the Lord and judge. The hand on the head of the animal as it was slaughtered is lost to me. I need a substitute or my very life is required. And the Israelites learned all about this at Sinai under law. But in light of our good biblical theology, let us not forget that before those sacrifices would begin, there was one that got them there in the first place. What was it? A Passover lamb. A Passover lamb was sacrificed. That Passover lamb launched the exodus, the freeing of God's people from Egypt, that he might take them here to Sinai to fellowship with him. So what do we do with this? What is it, if, if Christ's death is that catalyst that, that launches us then into another exodus, what do we do with this old stuff? He says, you've not come to this mount. You've come to Mount Zion. What do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the law? What do we do with history? Now, some of you don't like history. I love history. I don't think it's new to you. My wife does not. However, now that we moved into an old home, all of a sudden history is interesting for her. Why? She's looking up who owned our houses before. She's looking up who owned the land. And, and the, apparently there was a town called Osborne and Fair something. And then they came together and now it's Fairborn. And that's cool. And the land that we live on, I was owned by a Chambersburg, which Chambersburg is the road that goes through my hometown. And I didn't know that. And that's pretty cool. History is neat. Why? Because it's touching us. It's impacting us. Those same cool stories happen all over the U.S. and we hear little things like that, but they don't matter to me in particular because it's not touching me. So what do I do with this history? If I've not come to that mount, but I've come to this one, what do I do with that? Church, we don't unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't leave Mount Sinai behind. We don't let it go. We don't have a different God. We have a new covenant. But the old one stands. And listen, we do not dismiss the past. Because we are in Christ, we inherit its treasures and we witness its fulfillment. 
The reason history matters is because you inherit it. Whether it's world events, you live in the fruit of that now. Whether it's your family's history, you inherit that. You live in the fruit of that now. Whether it's physical items, you'll inherit that as well. We inherit the past. And in Christ, we inherit its treasures. And for us specifically, in this picture of these two mounts, we get to witness its fulfillment. We get to inherit and enjoy the past while looking forward to what is coming, knowing it will be ours as well. Is that not everything that we heard in chapter 11? When we looked at the faith of our brothers and sisters that went before us, we inherit their faith. We inherit these great treasures. And so now we see then that that first exodus happens again. The death of Jesus inaugurates the new exodus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is the slain Passover lamb, and with the new exodus has come a new Sinai experience. He brings us to another mount, and he speaks again. In fulfillment of the law of Moses given by the angels at Sinai, God has now spoken in his son, Hebrews chapter 1. The second thing I want you to see today is Mount Zion and perfect fellowship. Mount Zion and perfect fellowship. Verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the significance of this mount? We read about what happened at Sinai, chapter 19 of Exodus. We know what happens there in the preceding giving of the law, the, the institution of this nation, the codification of its laws. What is Mount Zion? The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, the first time we encounter this word in Scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, The king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. The deeper significance of this appears when we carefully consider what happens. Zion was captured by David when Israel had been thoroughly tried and found completely wanting. It occurred at a pretty notable crisis in the history of the nation, specifically after the priesthood had been absolutely corrupted for Samuel 2, and after the king of their choice, Saul, had reduced himself in 1 Samuel 28, and the people, 1 Samuel 31, to the lowest degradation we see. And so it was then at a time when Israel's fortune were pretty low, when they were thoroughly disheartened, and because of their great wickedness, they had the least reason to expect it, that God would graciously intervene. Just when Saul and Jonathan had been slain in battle, when the Philistines triumphed and Israel had fled before them in dismay, the Lord brought forth the man of his own choice. David, whose name means the beloved. Up to this time, 
the hill of Zion had been a continual menace to Israel. But now David wrests it from the hand of the Jebusites and makes it the stronghold of Jerusalem. On one of its peaks, the temple was erected, which was the dwelling place of Jehovah in the midst of his people. Zion, then, stands for the highest revelation of divine grace in the Old Testament times. And the way that we see Sinai as being the Old Testament salvation event, here we see this grace, this highest point of grace in the Old Testament. But it's interesting when you look at Mount Zion, it doesn't have just one peak. It has two. Moriah, on which the temple was erected, the seat of worship of God, and on the other, we see the palace of David was built, the royal residence of the kings of Judah. It's a striking figure of the priestly and kingly offices meeting in Christ on one mount. So Zion then was situated in the best part of the world, Canaan, the land which flowed with milk and honey, in the best part of the land, Judah's portion, and the best part of his heritage, Jerusalem, and in the best part of that city, the highest point, the city of David. And so the simple and evident meaning of this is that the gospel has not brought you into that which is material and visible, palpable, touchable by the physical senses, but only what is spiritual and only what can be apprehended by faith. A mount is a thing of the earth, whereas the glory of Christianity is entirely celestial. The passage which most clearly interprets this clause would be with Jesus at the woman at the well. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither worship at this mountain or at Jerusalem. The hour comes and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so we come to Mount Zion, and this should matter to Christians. This is our home. This is the heavenly city. The city of our God. And what do we find there? So much. <laughs> so much. That's why cold pizza's tomorrow. We're talking about these angels in festal gathering. These angels that are there singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. They've been doing that from the beginning and they will do that to the end. These angels who we're supposed to be on the same team with, right? Because we're supposed to sing the same thing. These angels who were against us and kept us out of the garden, away from fellowship and communion with God. Now we find a festal gathering. Not fire, not darkness, not thunder, but singing. And a festal gathering of angels who now we join with again together in communion and worship of the King. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To the church. The church, those who are enrolled, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those we see in Ephesians who are predestined before time. The people that the Lord has named as his own. Just as he called out Israel, he has called out his people. And their names are enrolled in heaven. And then we come to God, the judge of all. 
at, at a party, right? I was expecting probably something more like Heavenly Father, right? That would be more appropriate, it seems, to where we're going. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, angels, assembly of the firstborn, and your heavenly Father. Why does it say judge? That seems severe again. What do we do with that? Probably would prefer Heavenly Father, but this doesn't pull away from the beautiful privileges that we're reading here. There's a significant difference and expectation going before a judge as a guilty offender compared to having fellowship and communion with him in his office. And in our case, the supreme head of the heavenly society, the author and end of it all. That's a different experience because what is our expectation? We don't go as a criminal to receive a sentence. We come, as Paul says, in Christ. An author says this, and to God, the judge of all, who are we talking about there? That is the majesty of heaven itself. It was God as judge who appointed Christ to death. And it was God as judge who accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. To God as judge, believers have been reconciled. And by him, the judge, they were justified. Concerning Christ, our example, we read when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. The apostle reminds the saints that it is a righteous thing for God as judge to recompense tribulation to you that trouble you. Now it was as judge that God ascended this awful tribunal at Sinai and the people could not endure, but Christians now draw nigh to him with holy boldness because his law has nothing against them. The requirements of his justice were fully met by Christ. How great is the privilege of that state which enables poor sinners called by the gospel to approach the judge of all upon his bench, his throne, without fear. Only by faith is this possible. See what a wonderful summary it is of Hebrews 11, before, all the way to come finally to the celestial city and face the judge of whom justified you. You do so only by faith. None of this is new. This is the picture that we've seen. And finally we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a, what? Better. Better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is better. This is his last plea for it. An author said this about the blood. He said the specific thing that you note here is that it's not shedding. It's sprinkling. Sprinkling is the application to believers of its virtues and benefits. The more the Christian exercises repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, the more he will experience the peace-speaking power of that precious blood in his conscience. The blood of Christ speaks to God as a powerful advocate, urging the fulfillment of the mediator's part of the everlasting covenant, his perfect satisfaction to divine justice, the full discharge from condemnation purchased for his people.
The more you exercise repentance towards God, agreeing with the law that we deserve death, and that death was paid for us, and our faith toward Jesus Christ, then we see that we experience more of what that blood says. And what does it say? It says peace. Find me someone who has no peace, and I find someone without the blood sprinkled on them. Find someone sprinkled repeatedly over and over with this blood, and we find one who has faith in an everlasting covenant, trust that justice has been paid, and that condemnation is no more. So let's go back through that space in between as we wrap up. That space in between. Earlier, there was no evidence, and all that was done of God's being reconciled to them. Nothing at Sinai said that we're good. Nothing at Sinai said that everything's okay. The whole picture there was an absolute sovereign and a severe judge. There was nothing of father, nothing of gracious, nothing of merciful. What do we find now? Peace. No condemnation. Justification. Everything's reconciled. At the old mount, there is no, no hint of any kind of condescension, no, no dropping of the standard, no lowering of, of the exact severity of what was required in the law, and no relief, no pardon if you were to break it. But holiness is still required, right? And where do we find holiness? Not in our acts, but in the holiness, the righteousness that is given to you, the double imputation. We give God our sin. He puts it on Jesus. He takes the earned righteousness of Jesus and He puts it on us. We don't need condescension from the severity. We don't need the standard dropped. The standard can stay as high as it possibly can. It's the holiness of God. We don't need the standard drop. We meet the standard by Jesus' righteousness. We cover the space in between on the righteousness by being in Christ. At the old mount, there was no promise of grace in any way. No assistance for the performing of what was required. Instead, we had thunder and voices and earthquakes and fire. What do we find now? A festal gathering. Angels who are on our side. Blood that speaks peace over us. Grace to draw near. Mercy. We find all of it there. The old mount, the whole thing was just a glorious ministry of death and condemnation by which the conscience of sinners were forced to subscribe to their own condemnation as just and equal. What do we find at this mount? New life. You've been reborn. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're being raised together in Christ Jesus to a body that is imperishable and a kingdom, as we will see, is unshakable. We have it all. The space in between is completely filled by Jesus Christ. And so that's beautiful, Pastor. 
Amen. I agree. You might also notice a lack of imperatives in this passage. There's not a whole lot telling us what to do, right? Well, it's telling you what you are. And the imperatives are implied. I'm not going to leave you with that. I'll help you understand those things. My point is it's saying essentially along the lines of, hey, you, you're a father. You say, awesome, that's beautiful. No, go do father things. Go do father things in deed and in sentiment. Because of what you are, go be it. Go do it. A Christian, go do Christian things. Go do sheepy things. How do we do that? I'm going to kind of steal from verse 28. I'm going to leave the majority of it. I've been fighting hard to leave this stuff for Jeff for next week. Verse 28 echoes something that Calvin says. And so I'm blaming Calvin and not verse 28. But it's the same thing. Calvin says this, The higher the excellency of Christ's kingdom than the dispensation of Moses, and the more glorious our calling than that of the ancient people, the more disgraceful and the less excusable is our ingratitude. Unless we embrace in a becoming manner the great favor offered to us and humbly adore the majesty of Christ, which is here made evident. And then, as God does not present himself to us clothed in terrors, as he formerly did to the Jews, but lovingly and kindly invites us to himself, so the sin of ingratitude will be thus doubled, except we willingly and in earnest respond to his gracious invitation. What's he saying? The higher Mount Zion is over Sinai, the fact that we know that, the fact that we've seen that, the fact that we're called to that, and for us to be anything less than an absolute gratitude is a double disgrace on us. It's less excusable in our, in our ingratitude. At the end he's saying, so the sin of ingratitude is doubled if we don't respond eagerly, willingly to his gracious invitation. So two things, verse 28 says to do these things as well. But in re- response to what we've talked about, you need to embrace and adore. Embrace and adore. I'm pulling it from Calvin. You need to embrace in a becoming manner the great favor that is offered to us. So how do we do that? The great favor that is offered to us is Christ and his kingdom. Fellowship with him, an inheritance that's his, that he gives to us. And so what is he doing? He's giving. He's handing over. It's his by right. And it's his by value, by earning. And he gives it away. Church, if you want to embrace this picture, if you want to embrace Zion, you must offer yourself. You have to pour yourself out. This is where the grit that Pastor Jeff was talking about last week comes out. This is how you do it. You pour yourself out. How do we do that? You embrace discipline. That's going to pour yourself out. You lift your hands. You strengthen your knees. You make straight paths. You strive for peace. You strive for holiness. You be pure. You have to offer yourself. It's going to cost you something. And if Jesus has his way, it's going to cost you everything. It strikes me as both fascinating, encouraging, 
and very disheartening to look at history and the way that different nations have looked towards the future, particularly the afterlife. Whether it's Valhalla, whether it's being with Allah and your, you know, 72 virgins or whatever it may be, whether it's Erebor, the dwarfs, or for us, whether it's Zion, we live for something future, to be with our king, to be at his table. That's what we're promised in Revelation. So tell me why it is that we have Muslims who can have a global day of jihad, but when you get on Christian Twitter, they're all upset that we want guys to go to the gym If we're going to offer ourselves and be people of grit, it costs something. You have to do these things. There's no good intentions at Sinai. You're guilty. There's no good intentions at Zion. You do it. If we want to be a people who understand what it is that we've got from our inheritance in Christ, then we offer it back. We look forward to giving everything that we might, in their case, earn their way to be in Valhalla. They look forward to the fact that destiny is calling them. They look forward to the fact that at the end of pain and suffering, if they acquit themselves as faithful, they'll earn their way into the hall of the fathers. What do we have? People who are afraid of hard work people who don't want destiny, God forbid that he actually be sovereign and elect and declare. God forbid the fact that he provided a way and we don't have to earn it at all. That's the reality that we have. So embrace it. Offer yourself. Pour yourself out for the glory of God and the good of your brothers. Embrace it. Number two, adore. Adore. If you embrace this gift, if you embrace this kingdom, if you embrace this dispensation of grace, if you want Mount Zion with its palace and its temple, with its king and its priest, embracing it in that way that I just described is spiritual worship. It's not any different than what you're going to do here in five minutes. That is spiritual worship worship that is a life of worship embracing that is adoration when you do so by faith you take what Jesus has done for you and you do something with it and it brings glory to God the Father which is what Jesus was saying and what the Spirit is doing and so we see that it is now time for us to live in spirit and in truth, to adore by spiritual worship, by the pouring out of ourselves. John 4, 21-23, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you won't worship in this mountain or at Jerusalem. When you want to worship the Father, the hour has come. It's here now. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. As Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1-2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by all the things listed, 22 through 24, take these things, these mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or at Moses, the one who trembled in our passage, tells them to do in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Church, there are two peaks, two mounts. And on one of those mounts, there's two mounts. Which mount are you standing before today? You've been brought to one or the other. Christian, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Sinner who's still doing it his own way, you're still at Sinai. There's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot fill the space in between. It is dark, it is scary, and it will end in death. A right, just death. Christian, for those around you in your life, they're at Sinai. Call them to Zion. Bring them to the celestial city. Help them see. It is terrifying. There is nowhere... No way they can fill the gap in between. Call them to Zion. Call them to the city of David, to his beloved, that he might worship the one true judge who judges justly, that he might give them justification. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken again. That Sinai, as glorious as it was, as gracious as it was, Father, amazing as it is, to call out a people of your own. The people that you covenanted with, Father, that's not the last time you spoke. Father, you brought the word and flesh to us. Father, we have the word now here, and we have the word and dwelt in us. Father, let nothing be added or taken away. Let us trust in your word. Let us see our mediator there now, even before the throne, sprinkling blood on the saints. The blood that brings peace. Father, thank you for bringing us peace. It's by faith that we see that this is a better covenant. This is a better hope. There's nothing better than this. For all the pleas of the author of Hebrews, Father, we see our mediator sprinkling blood. We thank you. We pray this in his name. Amen.